You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, again, we've got a jam-packed episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast this week with tons of stuff to get to, including the fact there's a new UFC heavyweight champion, and potentially, I guess, either a fairly bright or fairly sticky future in that weight class, depending on how you want to look at it. First things first, though, clearly the most important item of the day. Have you seen that Ben Askren training video in advance of his uh, his boxing match with Larry Paul? I had not seen it until you sent it to me. Had to bring it to your attention. You brought it to my attention, and I watched it. And here's my first thought after watching it, and I thought I... I kind of find it impossible to get away from. Just this. So they're going out there. We're recreating the Rocky Four training montage. You know, extremely faithfully. Extremely faithfully. Not, not even. I was waiting for moments where we'd we'd go off script a little bit for comedic effect, and there really yeah. weren't. And we just really did it, kind of straight up, shot for shot, essentially. And yet, I came away going, "This motherfucker Ben Askren chopped down a whole ass tree." Mm-hmm. Just for this video. There was a tree. And it was a big tree, Chad. Like, you see him chopping away at that tree, just like Rocky in the training montage. And then I thought we we're going to do a couple chops at the tree and we we're going to move on. And instead, he chops it down entirely. And you can see it fall in the background of the video. And it is a tall tree. Like, I cannot stop now thinking about the life cycle of this tree. A hundred years ago. A tree begins to grow in the forest. A tree begins its life. And then, you know, you it makes it to the tree afterlife or whatever. And all the other trees are like, what finally got you, man? And he was like, well, Ben Askren had himself a, a boxing match with a YouTuber and see what he thought would be funny. What he thought would be good marketing material is to do the whole Rocky Four thing. And next thing you know, boom, I'm laying dead on the forest floor. Yeah, what's the what's the carbon footprint of uh, Ben Askren's Rocky Four training video montage? I guess, like in all seriousness, though, I'm watching that thing and I'm asking myself, where has this version of Ben Askren been our entire lives? Like, you know, I guess the guy has always known his way around a joke, so to speak. Yeah, and like he's, you know, he's always he's always quote unquote gotten it, I guess, a little bit. But then, like, you're gonna wait for your YouTube boxing match against Willie Paul. And this is the time that you're going to go balls to the wall on the, like uh, on the pre, the pre fight hype. Like you're going to go through the, through the, uh, the trouble of creating a, a shot for shot remake of the Rocky four training montage. Like this thing must've been hard to make, man. Like it's like two minutes and 50 seconds long, but there's a lot of shots in it. Looks like it probably took the day, at least, of yeah. running around wherever Ben Askren happens to be. Somewhere where they got snow in March, like a lot of snow. You yeah. Know? 
I would love to see the outtakes of him chopping that tree down because that's not a very big axe that he uses to, to chop that tree down. That so. took a while. You know that took a while. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know, man. Like, uh, seems like a weird time for Ben Askren to go full on into the self-promotion business. But maybe maybe this is the time. This is Maybe this is the time. A whole ass tree. Also, now, he can pr- promote his fight with Ezekiel Paul or whatever. <laughs> You mentioned uh, one of the strangest things about this thing is that it feels like it should have been funnier, right? Well, but it's, it's I mean, it's it's like partially comedic, but it's partially kind of it makes me feel like is Ben Askren walking a fine line here between like mocking this matchup, but still needing to look like he's taking this shit serious. If Ben Askren had written into the CME Venmo service, paid us 40 bucks and said, hey, guys. I'm thinking about doing a Rocky Four montage about my training for this Ebenezer Paul video. Uh, do you think I should just go faithful recreation shot for shot? Or should I try to mix it up and get funny and, and like throw in some of my own jokes like in there? We would have told him to keep it simple, bro. Yeah. We would have told true. him it's a, it's beloved source material for one thing. You don't want to completely mess it up by having some of your jokes fall flat. Better to just play it straight. And I mean, if you're going to box the YouTube guy, I think the best way to go about it is to not be seen as taking it super seriously. Because don't you think we would mercilessly mock Ben Askren if he was like, this is a fight of my life. Yes. My entire life has been in preparation for this moment. And this is the, the, the most important thing to me in the world. Everything else I did before this is all preamble to me winning this boxing match. Against you know, Davis and Paul. Yeah. Did you uh, did you see the stare down? The early well, we, we got till I believe April seventeenth. This thing goes down over on the Triller. Uh, but they they, they got uh, little little Joey Paul and Ben Askren together to do a stare down. Ben Askren gives him the face palm, the literal mm-hmm. face palm. Mm-hmm. Clark Paul throws a body shot. Little little, how's your father there? Uh, <laughs> As they as they separate, Ben Askren doesn't doesn't react to it at all. Uh, is there anything to take away from this? What's your take, Ben? What's your hot take on the Jimmy Paul Ben Askren stare down? Well, I mean, we're here for hot takes, man. I'm looking for a hot take. They're going to give you some excitement prior to the bell. That's one things you know about some of these kind of fights. That's one thing you know to expect here, and that's really what. The, the the YouTube boxer guy, he knows what he's selling. He's selling the sizzle, Chad. And yeah. that's what we're doing. Ben Askren, I guess maybe you could think of the this training montage video as him rising to that occasion. Also, my favorite part, the 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 Ben Askren touch of this training montage video, it's when he's running up the hill and you can see the disc golf uh thing in the background. That's yeah. how you know that this is really that this may be taking place on some Askren pr- family property. You know? <laughs> you see that disc golf shit hanging out. Uh, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This show, show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines or podcast libraries. But if you want to know how Ben and I have such deep knowledge about the Rocky four training montage, it's because we just watched it for the movie club podcast that we do over at our Patreon. We're there all week long doing three, sometimes four podcasts over at patreon.com slash co-main event. We got the Wednesday live chat. We got the Friday power hour. And of course the Thursday movie club 
all for the beloved patrons of the CME. So if that sounds like something you want to get down with, head over to patreon.com slash co-main event. Check us out. Maybe think about joining the team. If you really want to support the team, I'd love it if you would buy my new novel, The Blaze. It's available wherever books are sold. It's an exceptional thriller, according to Publishers Weekly. A lot of the little co-maniacs have read it already. They seem to like it. I'd love it if you would check it out. We got music this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over on Twitter at The Fifth Element, Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element. And it's been a while, so I guess I need to remind you that that's The Fifth Element with an A, The Fifth Element. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Francis Ngannou did it all right on Saturday. And frankly, we'll be lucky if this version of Ngannou is content to be the UFC heavyweight champion and not rule the entire world atop a throne made of skulls. And in round number two, the ink wasn't even dry on the UFC 260 commissioner's reports before UFC president Dana White suggested John Jones might not really want to fight in Gano. So you know what that means. This dude is asking for a raise. And in round number three, somehow it kind of feels like we never really fully appreciated Stipe Miocic as heavyweight champ. And also somehow it kind of felt like he wanted it that way. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Simon Slugga. Okay. I would good, buy that mixtape. Good to hear from uh, Croatian goalkeeper Simon Slugga. Simon Slugga sounds like a member of Griselda. It sounds like he and Benny the Butcher and West Side Gun are going to be putting out an album every week this spring. Which I know love you Simon love. Slugger. That yeah. guy's sl- flow is dope. He writes, The beating T. Wood took gave me flashbacks to when my dad whooped me for stealing a car radio. Sounds like there's more of a story there. Yeah. This is why I still take my radio face off when I go to the mall. I'm not, you're not getting me like that. Uh, I knew after that day that it's best to stop the love of crime, and hopefully Woodley now knows that it's time to hang up the gloves and not step into the UFC cage. Don't want to see a man constantly get beat down like that. So uh, Tyron Woodley goes out there, co-main event of UFC 260, drops a first-round submission loss to Vicente Luque. Not necessarily a surprise, just considering how things have been going for Tyron Woodley and the the odds headed into this fight had Vicente Luque a fairly significant favorite. Uh, these guys pick up fight of the night honors for this one. Uh, which is kind of an interesting choice. $50,000 bonus here uh, for both Vicente Luque and Tyron Woodley. Tyron Woodley comes out aggressively in this thing. Like he really wants to get Vicente Luque to the ground. Can't really do it. They end up trading them bungalows in the middle of the cage. Tyron Woodley does the stanky leg for what seemed like an eternity. Vicente Luque finally gets him down, locks on uh, the choke and secures the tap out. Uh, Is it time for Tyron Woodley to walk away? Watching this, Ben, did this seem like a nail in the coffin to you, or is this just uh, another sort of bad beat for Tyrone Woodley here? Well, first of all, you talk about them getting fight of the night. This was one of those fights where they packed a whole lot of living into three minutes and 56 seconds. They sure you know, did. you got to give them that. And then you looked at, at the undercard, there wasn't like another one that really jumped out at, at you as one way more deserving of fight of the night. So I get it. 
I said before this fight that what I really wanted to see, more than just winning or losing, since, you know, Tyron Woodley did come in here as a sizable underdog. We kind of expected him to lose this one to Vicente Luque. Especially, I think he said it was his last fight on his UFC contract. Kind of seems like the sort of matchmaking they give you when they want to use what's left of your legacy to boost up one of the guys who's going to be still still sticking around, but also send you out on a loss to diminish your value to somebody else. And I said that what I wanted to see was Tyron Woodley to look like he wanted to be there. To not do the thing that he's done, like the three fights before this, where he just looked so lethargic and would get to a point when he knew he was losing, but there just was no urgency and the, the fire in the belly was clearly gone. And he fought like he knew that that was a problem yeah. and that, and that he was one way or another, he was going to rectify that problem. He came charging right out there, that big right hand. And if anything that got him in trouble, it was just being a little too aggressive. He kind of left himself open there. He, he's, he tagged Vicente Luque and clearly felt like, okay, maybe I got the guy hurt. Let me go after him. And then just left himself a little too wide open for the counter. And that's when Luque fired back and he was never really able to get back in the fight from there. But I, I, I totally get what Simon Slug is saying that seeing that something feels a little depressing about imagining Tyron Woodley in bare knuckle boxing, you know, six months from now, or even watching him in Bellator uh, or PFL or something. And yet you see him in there and you do kind of ask yourself if they gave him, if he, against a different quality of competition, maybe Tyron Woodley still has a few good fights left in him if he wants them. And maybe financially he feels like he might need them. But I, I also don't want to see him get beat down. But I also don't think that going out there guns blazing and then losing a fight to Vicente Luque means that you suck and that you are a danger to yourself in the cage. Vicente Luque is fucking good, man. You put Tyron Woodley in there, like this version of Tyron Woodley, in there against a whole lot of other welterweights, and he might beat him. And you look at who the guy has been fighting lately. I know we look at it and go, okay, look at this streak of losses. But the streak of losses is, you know, Kamara Usman, Gilbert Burns, Colby Covington, and Vicente Luque. Those are all some of the best welter- like those might That might just be a list of the best four welterweights in the world right now. So... I don't, I don't necessarily think that it has to mean that he's done if he, if he actually wants to keep going. Yeah, I agree. And obviously anybody, uh, gets tagged right in the face by Vicente Luque, going to get hurt because that guy hits hard and he's been punishing people throughout the majority of his UFC career. Did any of it strike you as sort of like shades of late career Chuck Liddell though? Uh, you know, where Chuck would be out there. And I'm not, I'm not talking about late, late career Chuck Liddell because <laughs> that guy who showed up to fight Tito for the yeah. De La Hoya promotion is that's, I don't know who that was, but, uh, you know, late UFC career Chuck Liddell where he shows up looking like he recently got a tan and, and, uh, discovered, rediscovered where they keep the weights and he's out there looking all right, doing his thing. And then he gets, he gets touched on the chin and it's lights out. Like, yeah, but come on, man. Chuck was getting touched on the chin by the, the lightest of blows and was in trouble. And that Vicente Luque tagged Tyron Woodley with a couple really good shots. And it wasn't like he got knocked out. He got submitted, you know, that's yeah, but not till after he, he looked like he was a taxi dancer at the gold coast club for about 45 seconds all the way across the cage. What is that reference? Where did you come up with that? What? And you know, you know, I got references. Wow. Okay. But uh, I mean, I still don't think that it's the sign that, 
okay, your your chin is completely shot. Uh, to me, if anything, if you want to compare it to late career versions of noted MMA fighters, how about late career Fedor, where he would show up and kind of fight like, well, fuck it. You know, like like when he showed up to fight Dan Henderson that time. And like it just seemed like he was like, hey, I'm going to throw these things and hope for the best. And if it leaves me wide open to get clocked in return, you know, one way or another, we're going to find out. Like, I don't have the patience to go out here and fight a tactical three-round battle with you. And I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to come out there and try to take your head off. And, uh, you know, maybe it all works out in the end. That's what it reminded me more of. I don't think that, like, physically it proved that Tyron Woodley can't take a punch anymore. Next question this week comes to us from Dan Alexander, who writes, Is Montana native Sugar Sean O'Malley the first UFC fighter to have two walk-offs in one fight? Okay, I hear so. people saying that second one was not a walk-off. I mean, he walked off a little bit, but, like, came back and, and hammered the guy, and then the ref pushed him off. Like, that's that's not really looked, a walk-off. Right, it looked like he tried to walk off. A couple times here and then realized he had to go put one more one more shot right on Thomas Almeida's dome to get the referee to step in and stop it. Uh, third round KO over Thomas Almeida. Sean O'Malley uh, gets the much needed win after his loss to Marlon Vera back at UFC 252. He looked good in this fight, man. Like uh, he looked sharp. He looked light on his feet, covered a lot of distance through all the spinning shit. Hits hard, obviously especially at that weight. And I don't know, man, like, uh, I feel like sometimes in this sport, we we can make mountains out of molehills. We can like blow something a little bit out of proportion. And like the fact that Sean O'Malley tried to walk away in the first round when he had Almeida hurt seemed to become kind of like a big talking point, a big issue, but I don't know. He kicked him right in his damn face and then punched him one more time to boot. I probably would have thought the fight was over too. Yeah, but I mean, he did let Thomas Almeida back in that fight to whatever extent. I mean, I think really that's a credit to Almeida's toughness because you, a lot of people are going to be finished after that sequence. And, and even a lot of people are going to be finished when John O'Malley gives you a brief reprieve just long enough to get back up and start getting clocked again. And Thomas Almeida, he shrugged that off remarkably quickly and was back in that fight. And it seemed like, okay, is this the mistake that's going to cost you? And ultimately turns out no. So, no, you're still you're still the better fighter. You're still going to finish him. Also, though, they made this matchup so that Sean, Alma- Sean O'Malley could go out there and get a win and look good. Like they made this matchup had this sort of thing, yeah, written all over it from the beginning. Yeah, uh, a durable guy, a tough guy in uh, Thomas Almeida, but at the same time, you know, mired in a long string of losses. Here, he's one and. Five in his last six fights. Last win was 2016 over Albert Morales at a UFC Fight Night event. Uh, Sean O'Malley was the prohibitive betting favorite coming into this one. So not a surprise that he gets the win here. And again, just a sign, I think, that shows you that the UFC sees this guy as a, a potential star at 135 pounds. He's 13-1 and one now. He's got the win over Eddie Wineland and then the loss to, to Marlon Vera just recently before coming in and, and beating Thomas Almeida here. I saw it floated around online that the thing to do next, Ben, might be Sean O'Malley against Dominic Cruz. Yeah, and it sounds like Dominic Cruz likes that idea, huh? Yeah, it's, and it's always tricky, obviously, how to bring these prospects along. As I said, O'Malley now with with uh, you know over a dozen fights, and he's he looked pretty good in this one against Thomas Almeida. I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't sneeze at this matchup against Dominic Cruz. It's definitely one that I would watch, but at the same time, like it seems like a big step step up in competition for a guy who who is just now righted the ship after a, a misstep uh, against Marlon Farah. Yeah. I mean, it's not a terrible idea, I guess, if you want to find out. Like, if you want to find out if Sean O'Malley is going to be a guy, a capital G guy going forward, put him against Dominic Cruz one way or another might help you. Because it's tough to know what to make of a guy when he seems like he's had the same injury that's hampered him a couple times. And obviously, that's a question mark. He seemed to really be aware of people talking about it. He walked by Media Row reportedly after this fight and was like, oh, all you have to do is like, kick me low, right? And my, my ankle's messed up. And he, and I was like, man, I don't really recall a whole lot of people saying that, that all you had to yeah. do is – I recall the people saying that, like, you, you suffer from the same injury twice in very visible, noticeable ways. It does make people wonder if that's going to be an ongoing issue for you. But that's a that's a fair thing to wonder. Uh, clearly, the guy still has a lot of good attributes. But also, to go from Thomas Almeida to Dominic Cruz, even this version of Dominic Cruz, who just showed us he can still do the Dominic Cruz stuff. You know, maybe a, a half a step slower than he used to, but he can still do all that same stuff. That's going to be a big jump up in competition. But yeah. One way or another, you, you get some answers there from Sean O'Malley. I mean, one thing I want to say before we move off the topic, though, is you want to talk about how tough a line of work this can be. The career of Thomas Almeida is a good reminder because that guy was 21 and 0. He debuted in the UFC in 2014 at UFC Fight Night Shogun versus St. Prue, Chad, down there yep. in Uberlandia, Brazil. I believe that might have even been the event where we learned of the existence of Uberlandia, Brazil. Still not convinced it's a real place. He reels off four in a row. Tim Gorman, you know, Eve, Eve Jobin, Brad Pickett, Anthony Burchak, you know, some, some guys, guys with Wikipedia pages and stuff. Gets knocked out by Cody Garbs, you know, future UFC bantamweight champion Cody Garbs. Rebounds with that win over Alvin Morales and then four straight losses. And people are going, okay, that guy's done now. Starts off 21 and 0. And then before you know it, four fight winning, four fight losing streak in the UFC. This, this, a, it's a tough way to make your living. Yep. And now you're getting called in to get beat by Sean O'Malley. You want to know how old Thomas Almeida is? 29. Well, so, so. you're saying there's plenty of time to start that new career as a data analyst. Maybe look into some online classes. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Associate's degree. Learn to code. Online associate's degree. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Hungarian-American inventor and physicist Leo Szilard. How do you okay. think you say that name? I'm not like that. Yeah, Szilard. It's S-Z-I-L-A-R-D. Okay. Was the Reebok deal the biggest slap in the face of UFC fighters or just another in a long line of slaps like fighting Nate Diaz? Now that the deal has ended, we see that the final tally of $39 million was paid out over the six-year program. While that sounds like a ton of money, it was significant. It was a significant pay cut to most fighters. Not only did Uncle Dana make this deal before not make the or make this deal without consulting any fighters to see if it worked for them, he also continuously lied about how much the fighters would get. During the immediate backlash, it was quote all the money goes to the fighters. Later, it was the vast majority goes to the fighters. It turns out that the fighters got about fifty six percent. That's a bit shy of Dana's estimates, I'd say. Hopefully, Venom is better. Yeah, I I sure. still think it's wild, Ben, that uh, allegedly the Reebok thing is in the books, and you'd have to assume that people are going to be wearing Venom in the cage on April 10th at the next UFC event for uh, Marvin Vittori versus Darren Till. 
and we have heard nothing yeah. about this deal. We have we don't know if there's going to be a UFC line of Venom shorts. We don't know if you just if they just send you a link to the Venom store and you pick out what you want to wear on fight night. We don't know. If I was a fighter, I'd be worried about the money. To yeah, be honest we with haven't you. heard anything about what the fighters are going to get paid through it. Haven't seen any of the gear. And it's, yeah, you're right, supposedly going to start what, in like two weeks. Yep. And usually, if the UFC has good news, they tell us about it, right? So if I was a fighter, I would want my manager to get on the phone and find out what's going on with the, uh, with the out- outfitting money, man. What's going on with the, the athlete outfitting compliance pay? Because the silence would unnerve me a little bit. If I'm being perfectly honest. If I'm Venom, I'm also going, hey, man, Reebok got this whole rollout thing with a big press event and everything. Whoa. How about we get us get us some flexibility in here? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where's our Giblert? How are we supposed to find our Giblert if we don't even get the opportunity? <laughs> As for the question about is this the, was the Reebok deal the biggest slap in the face or just another in a long line of slaps like fighting Nate Diaz, I say it's the latter. I mean, I think it was it was a big thing, and I think it the biggest thing about it really, other than that, for some fighters who went from making hundreds of thousands of dollars in sponsorships to making you know like fifteen grand or whatever, uh, I think that the biggest thing about it was that it showed that the UFC will just make a huge unilateral change that affects everybody and that affects the way. It might undercut some of the assumptions you had when you signed your current contract. And it will still hold you to that contract, even though the sands have shifted under your feet. And that that has been a thing that we've seen the UFC willing to do before. And you, you kind of see the same thing with the move to selling all the pay-per-views through ESPN+. It affects fewer people. Because there are fewer people getting cuts of the pay-per-view. But I remember talking to managers at the time who, when they heard that news, were going, wait a minute. So you moved all your pay-per-view sales through this one thing. Like where there's a paywall to the paywall now. So it stands to reason that you're going to sell fewer pay-per-views that way. And my guy has been busting his ass his entire professional career to get to the point where he's a champion, where he gets a cut of the pay-per-views. But now you've made a deal that puts more guaranteed money in your pocket but probably means fewer total pay-per-views sold, and we're not going to adjust the contracts to reflect this new reality that like you have wrought upon us. And it just shows that when the UFC has that sort of unilateral power, it's thinking about the UFC, how to benefit yeah. the UFC with it. And it doesn't yeah. care if it, effect- if it completely changes the situation for the fighters who, who agreed to basically a deal under completely different circumstances. Yeah, uh and you it was one in a long line of slaps in the face delivered to the workforce from the owners but it was a pretty significant one yeah for a lot of people to sort of outright do away with third party sponsors in the octagon ended an important additional revenue stream for a lot of these athletes and the key stat might be i'm going to read this here from John Nash uh the bloody elbow writer who was probably among the best MMA writers when it comes to reporting about business and, and finances. Yeah. Here, this, this might be the key stat, folks, from John Nash. Most importantly, he writes, UFC sponsor revenue 
that's money paid directly to the UFC by sponsors, went from $52 million in 2015 to an estimated 100 plus million today. Now, obviously that's not all because of the Reebok deal and that, you know, fighters can't have their own sponsors. You could make the case that, you know, ESPN and, and, uh, getting higher and higher profile platforms for the UFC itself might've had something to do with an increase in sponsor money. But when the only way to get your manscaped logo inside the octagon is to deal directly with the company, it has an effect. Mm-hmm. And there you go. The UFC more yep. than doubles its annual sponsor revenue during the time of the Reebok deal. Yeah. Uh, well, let's do one more here. This one from the sweeper from Crystal Palace. Okay. We're not even going to bother to look up who that is, huh? We're just going mean, to write that down. Okay. How would okay. how would we ever know? The sweeper from Crystal Palace writes, apparently UFC 261 in Jacksonville, quote, sold out in minutes, at least according to the head meatball. Okay. Is this surprising, you guys? I know Jacksonville is in Florida, but I thought demand might be limited because, you know, the deadly fucking virus still plaguing the world. Uh, it does, does not, not surprise, surprise me, me no. even a little bit that no. the UFC was able to find 15,000 people who would jump at the opportunity to go see the live product after a year when they weren't allowed to do that, especially considering it's in the panhandle of Florida and... uh no, I'm not surprised at all. The thing that the only thing that's surprising is that we are doing this shit at all. I do wonder. I wish I could he- see a stat on how much of the tickets were purchased by the people who are actually going to be going. Because I would think if you're somebody who, uh, you know, maybe you had yourself a little hustle as a scalper or, you know, you're some kind of one of these companies where your whole thing is turning around and, you know, selling these tickets. This probably been a hard time for you during the deadly fucking pandemic that shut down live events. You know, like if ticket sales, if like be you know, it's kind of second party like ticket sales like that are your whole business. What what did you even do over the last? It's not like there's a whole lot of stuff that you could pivot to from there. So I would I would be curious to know whether it's actual like old time in person scalpers or some of those websites that do this stuff. I'd love to know how much of that initial 15-minute sellout was bought by the actual people who will show up on fight night. How about the fine print here? Okay. (laughs) I'm just going to read a a short excerpt from the section on the UFC's uh, ticket page called Assumption of Risk. Attendance at the event may lead to exposure to COVID-19. And the contraction of COVID-19 may result in severe and permanent damage to the health of the holder, the ticket holder, and or others, including, but not limited to, death, fever, weight loss, irreversible pulmonary, respiratory, and neurological system damage, loss of taste taste or smell, mental or emotional distress, temporary or permanent disability, loss of income, loss of employment, loss of financial or other opportunities, medical expenses, which may or may not be covered by insurance, cleaning expenses, mandatory self-quarantine, loss of licenses and similar approvals by any regulatory or self-regulatory body to which the holder or any of the releasing parties is subject, investigating and or prosecution by civil, criminal, and other regulatory authorities and other harms and lost opportunities, whether economic, reputational, or otherwise. Reputational? 
Yeah. I'm, I might suffer a, a, a reputational loss from going to UFC 261 or whatever. Yeah. If you went to UFC 261, assumption of risk, you may suffer a, a reputational disaster, I guess. And the UFC is in, indemnified from that. You know what? I mean, obviously, they were going to do something like this, uh, that seeing the actual language does drive the point home. But if you want to come to me later on and complain about how you caught COVID at UFC 261, the 15,000 person sellout in 15 minutes, whatever, I will not have a lot of sympathy for you. No. I nor, like nor you, will I. You knew. You knew what you were agreeing to, and you must have enthusiastically agreed to it. Right. Not not a lot of, of sympathy to go around, yet when you hear anyone from the UFC, Dana White in particular, talk about these events and how they're excited to get back out on the road and acting like it's business as usual and we're all kind of acting like the pandemic is in the rearview mirror now, you may want to reflect. You may want to think to yourself. If you were a journalist, maybe you would even want to ask, what about the fine print, homie? Because that seems to indicate that things are not all good, that this is not all in the rearview mirror and that this is not all business as usual, so to speak. What of my reputation? What of your reputation? Indeed. This is, this is kind of like the contract I had you sign when we started the co-main event podcast, mm -hmm. the harms, the harms yeah. section, the assumption of risks, risks, exception or section on that contract was robust. And look at my reputation. Now it's in tatters. Yeah. Absolute drag, tatters. Dragging it through the gutter every week. In any case, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Just go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Then on Friday during the Power Hour podcast over on the Patreon page, we went back and we rewatched the first fight between Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou. And I think we were both struck by a lot of aspects of that fight, particularly that, yes, if you were a head coach of Francis Ngannou and you watched that fight, you would have a lot of stuff that you needed to clean up before you got in yourself into a rematch with Stipe Miocic. But it seemed as we watched it that most of the changes that Nganu had to make were achievable. It wasn't like a thing where you watched the fight and you thought to yourself, this dude will never beat this other dude in a million opportunities. It seemed like the things he could do to increase his chance to win were achievable, that they, that they, were, uh, you know, they were things that he could add to his skill set with, with some practice. And then he goes out there on Saturday night at UFC 260, and he goddamn has nearly a perfect fight did everything that we talked about that you would want to see from him in a rematch during that power hour podcast he stayed within himself he didn't charge right out and go buck wild with over aggressiveness he threw straight punches he had the takedown defense he had to st stuff what one or two takedowns and that was all, all she wrote and uh, he conserved his energy he got himself out of out of bad positions got himself into positions where he could do the damage the result is a second round KO victory for Francis Ngannou, who is now your UFC heavyweight champion, a position that frankly, I think potentially has far reaching effects 
uh, not only this division, but perhaps the UFC's business. But for starters, let's just talk about this performance from Francis Ngannou. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I think we also said on that Power Hour that the plus 130 line or whatever it was on betting this was under one and a half rounds was looking yeah, pretty good. Mm-hmm. It did cash. That cashed. I mean, I expected Francis Ngannou to look better, to look like he had made some improvements from that first Stipe fight. And he looked much better than even I expected. Just his his composure, like the way even when he had Stipe hurt in some of these moments, and I was kind of watching to see, is he going to go nuts here looking for the finish and wear himself out like he did? Because he, he had that moment. One of the things we talked about watching that first fight was early on, he shut down some of Stipe's takedowns, but then there really was no price for Stipe to pay for even trying those takedowns. That he, even when he managed to stop them, all Stipe had to do was step back and reset, and he was fine. And here, you know, that takedown that Stipe goes for in the first round, where you're looking and, and seeing, like, okay, we're going to find out what his wrestling is like. And, you know, he gets that, that pretty textbook sprawl, circles around, and then starts just jacking him to the face. Yep, and looked like he might finish it there, and, and that to me was uh, like a, that, that's a good indicator that that guy really made some big improvements, but also approached this fight in a different mental space than that first one where he was treating it like Stipe is anybody else, and you're just all you got to do is touch it once and they're going to sleep. He definitely was seemed like a matured version of that Francis Ngannou in this one. I also got to say, you know. Credit to Stipe for even lasting this long, taking some of these shots. Because, yeah. like, that moment where Francis is just just pounding away at him there as, he, as he's trying to get back to his feet. And even later in the fight, like early in the second round, we've seen Francis Ngannou just, you know, barely, like, landing glancing blows that put people to sleep. And he was landing some direct shots on Stipe, and Stipe was eating them. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the moment that he circled around Miocic's body in the first round and pretty much took his back. Looked like he was going to take his back there. It reminded me, in terms of pure quickness, of a thing that I saw Brock Lesnar do really early in his career. I can't remember if it was in the Heath Herring fight or the first Frank Mir fight, where they get into a position very similar to that, and you see this massive man very nimbly and quickly uh, rotate around his opponent's body to put himself in a position where he can do damage. And the way that Nganu did it reminded me of that, just in terms of explosiveness and quickness. And I got to say, if we live in a world where Francis Nganu will stuff your takedown and flirt with taking your back, we are in trouble, mm -hmm. my friend. We are all in trouble because that that's some dangerous shit right there that he has shown that that he will he can grow into that kind of skill set. Um, and then in the end. Man, you do have to give Miocic credit for his sheer toughness because he does take some of these shots and he keeps going, which he was able to do in the first fight also. Uh, but when the end comes, it's a straight right that stuns him. And then Miocic fires back and thinks that he has hurt Ngano and he dives back into the fray. And the thing that knocks him unconscious is just a little short left hook. Not not one of those big monsters. Not the yeah. uppercut that he knocked out Alistair Overeem with. Not one of the uh, big-ass haymakers that he knocked out the biggie boy with, but just like a little step-in left hook. And the man, the heavyweight champion of the world, is unconscious. 
that's some scary shit, man. That's, I don't, that's, that's a skill set that's, that's, uh, formidable to say the least. Yeah. And that is one of those moments where you see some growth from Francis Ngannou, because that's one of the things we were talking about in that first fight is you see him throwing some of those left hooks where they're just wide outside his body. Like he's like, he's just swinging a rake around in the front yard and Stipe did not have too much trouble avoiding those. And here you see, here's like a critical moment where Stipe clips him, has him hurt for a second, gets him to take like one backward step and is going to charge in. And then bam, just like a reflex, that short left hook comes out and it's, there's not even a whole lot on it and flattens him, just catches him coming right into it. Like that is, that is going to be a problem for a whole lot of people at heavyweight. And damn it, isn't that isn't that pretty exciting? I mean, yeah, I think it's very exciting, especially when you consider that, yes, Francis Ngannou showed a lot of improvement in his wrestling here and was able to ward off those takedowns and knocked out Stipe Miocic. But when you look at the UFC heavyweight top five or six, now that Miocic, at least for the moment, has been dispatched, if we're going to get a trilogy fight, who knows? We'll talk about that a little bit more in round number two. But you look at the top contenders, at least among the people who are already active in the heavyweight division. We will talk about John Jones also in round number two. But you got Derek Lewis. You got Curtis Blades, who Ngano has already defeated. You got Cyril Gaon, Alexander Volkov, Jarzino Rosenstrike. You got Walt Harris. That's kind of your top, your top five or six in the heavyweight division. Uh, not a lot of noted grapplers on that list. That is a list of guys who you would think would come into a fight and challenge Francis Ngannou at his own game for the most part. And when you start to think of it that way, you know, clearly we don't know what's going to happen. Miocic, John Jones, all that stuff's still pending. But that's the kind of thing that sets up as a fairly significant potential win streak for Francis Ngannou. Now, we don't like to talk about the heavyweight title in those terms because you get three defenses deep and you are already in record-setting territory. Right. But like that, just to look around at the competition, things look kind of sweet if you are in the Francis Ngannou corner at this point. I have a question. Are you, are you trying to get him hit by like a falling helicopter? I don't know if he has a motorcycle uh, <laughs> or if he likes to ride it around Las Vegas at night. But I see no issue if that's if that's what he wants to do. Also, don't really see the need for him to ever ever eat a vegetable ever again. You're What's the, the worst that could happen? Chad Dundas, the type of guy to see a a possible generational talent emerge at heavyweight, claim the UFC heavyweight title, and then be like, "Hey, man, what are you doing on your your off weekend? You want to go spelunking? Yeah. Want to explore some caves with me?" Want to do some deep sea diving? I I've just learned to scuba dive myself, but I'm pretty sure I could teach you. Watch mm -hmm. some YouTube videos on it. Let's go, man. I just bought this cigarette boat, Francis. Let's see how fast she goes. What do you think? God damn it! Don't all, you all do joking, this. All joking aside, though, Francis Ngannou is the figure that the UFC heavyweight division has been waiting for for a while. If he can turn out to be the fighter it's been waiting for, time will tell. But as we've talked about with this dude before. Not only one of the best stories in combat sports, but one of the best personal life stories in all of professional sports. He is a nice and thoughtful man. He looks like a million bucks. All you got to do is put the guy on a poster or show mm -hmm. that highlight of him knocking out Alistair Overeem. Show the highlight of him knocking out Stipe Miocic now. You should be able to generate some sales. I would think if the UFC 
cares to put its promotional weight behind Francis Ngannou, that he could become a, a significant pay-per-view draw for them if he is able to remain UFC heavyweight champion. Yeah, it doesn't seem like you would really have to do that much at all, right? Because it's just, there's so so many of the pieces that we say we want are right there. I mean, imagine somebody who just like tunes in or watches the highlight or anything. They see this guy who looks like just a destroyer of worlds. He puts Steve Babyosich to sleep and then he shows up in the interview afterwards. And he's like, it's, it, was, it was a very good feeling for me. Uh, and and then you hear about the guy's life story. Like, how do you not want to go? Okay, wh- what's he doing next? Let me set a calendar alert for the next time this guy is going to be on TV doing this stuff because I need to see it. Speaking of what he's doing next, that's what we'll be talking about coming up in round two. But first, let's do. Are you fucking kidding me? My my, are you fucking kidding me? Ben is related to this fight, so I will just go ahead and say it. Okay, and that is how are people seriously going to be online? continuing to criticize Herb Dean for his stoppages in the wake of this fight. Man, you got a guy as fast as Francis Ngannou. First of all, you got 600 pounds of man meat in there. You got to keep a little bit of distance. (laughs) You don't want to stand too close to that if you're Herb Dean. Francis Ngannou, with shocking speed, knocks out Stipe Miocic. And Herb gets there about as fast as he humanly possibly could. Ngano gets a lick or two in, but then we got the stoppage. Are you fucking kidding me? I feel like criticizing Herb Dean's stoppages now is just a thing. It's just a thing we're going to do no matter what kind of job he does. You got uh, Jason Herzog out there letting Tyron Woodley uh, do the two-step for about 60 seconds, and he's good with it. If, if, if Herb Dean had done that, oh, we would be breaking out the war type on Twitter. People would be outraged. But no, not going to say anything about it because it's it's Jason Herzog, a guy we all like. But Herb Dean is is takes him a fraction of a second to get there to stop Ngano versus Miocic, and we're gonna we're, we got his name trending on Twitter. Are wow, you fucking they, kidding me? Fucking kidding me. His name was really trending on Twitter. I missed it that. It was. I mean, also if you get in there to stop that one, you got Francis Ngano coming trying to land that big hammer fist follow up, and Herb Dean's basically got to throw his body in there, like. That's that's no small thing. That's really jumping on the grenade to get in yeah. there between Steve Miocic's face and and Francis Ngannou's hammer fist. That, that could take it totally. But I do like there's that moment where you can kind of freeze frame it where Steve is doing is falling back with his knee all crow copped underneath him and everything, and and Ngannou is getting ready to follow up, and you could see Herb Dean like in the sprinter's pose, basically with a look on his face like, oh shit, yeah, gotta get yeah. on the horse for this one. Yeah, let's let, let's let Herb do his work. You fucking kidding me? Jed, this week, my are you fucking kidding me? We mentioned early uh, Vicente Luque's win over Tyrone Woodley. He gets on the mic after this big win. And what does he want to do with his post-fight call-out moment? He says, I called out Nate Diaz before, and he didn't respond. So I'm doing it again. Oh, no. Oh, Vicente. Are you fucking kidding me? I just... This is like a... I'm not, I'm not mad. I'm just a little disappointed. Like... You're better than that, baby. You're better than that, Vicente Luque. Yeah. You don't need to keep doing this. You don't need to keep texting him you up, you know, if he's le- leaving you on red. Move on. Like, you, yeah. you can move on to a better and more realistic target that would also be a better fight. And somebody who would actually be interested in, let me fight Vicente Luque to figure out what's what in the UFC welterweight pecking order. You're better than that, Vicente Luque. Fucking yeah. kidding me? Just continuing to text. 
text WYD to Nate Diaz. <laughs> nobody's nobody's responding. Yeah. Are you kidding me? He doesn't even know where his phone is. <laughs> That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. So, Chad, moments after Francis Ngannou's knockout win over Stipe Miocic, the the commentators on the UFC 260 pay-per-view broadcast, they know what's up. Daniel Cormier begins with almost a little bit of what you could call malicious glee to talk about the possibility of John Jones versus Francis Ngannou. Basically being like, oh yeah, you're a heavyweight now, my old rival and former UFC light heavyweight champion John Jones. Well, now you got to fight that guy. And he just almost cackles with delight at the thought of John Jones having to face this terrifying monster, Francis Ngannou. And yet John Jones, he's got the, the, the Twitter fired up. He's like, you know, let's party. Let me get paid. But let's party. Let's, let's do this shit. Everybody... Immediately after that fight is thinking, holy shit, John Jones versus Francis Ngannou is going to be hot fire. And then, what does the promoter, UFC President Dana White, do when he shows up at the press conference? He doesn't know if John Jones really wants that fight. John Jones keeps talking about how he wants to be paid more. You know, Dana White always telling us, Chad, there are ways to turn down a fight without turning down a fight. That's what he thinks is going on here. Just looking at, you know... Page 72 in the Dana White playbook. You look at the table, you look in the index, you'd be like, what do I do when a fighter says he wants more money to fight? Uh, he's scared. He's just shaken in his goddamn boots. John Jones vacated his UFC light heavyweight title after being the most dominant light heavyweight champion in MMA history. Gained a bunch of weight. Remade his body to go up to heavyweight because he doesn't want to fight Francis Ngannou. What's really going on, Chad? Best promoter in the world, am I right? You got the you got a uh, an easy bunt. You got a gimme putt, a two foot putt to break the record for most pay per views sold in a single UFC event. And you're probably gonna let it go by because you don't want to pay John Jones a little bit more money. That's really frustrating, frankly, from a fan's perspective. And it is hard for me to believe that anybody in the world believes Dana White when he says stuff like this. And then you go online and there are armies of people showing up. Some of them perhaps bots. I don't know. Some of them seem to be real individuals who are ready to believe that John, that 250 pound John Jones, who has gone through all of the things that you just mentioned for the express purpose of entering the heavyweight division, suddenly would not want to do it when John Jones is on there actively telling you that he does want to do it. It's I, I, uh, it's inconceivable to me that, that you wouldn't put this thing together. And if we don't, if we don't get Ngannou versus Jones, a lot of the public focus undoubtedly will be on the fighters and what they asked for and how much they wanted and the John Jones tweets, et cetera, et cetera. When that happens, remember that the part of this negotiation, the party in this negotiation that comes to the table with the rigid financial demands is the UFC. They're the entity that insists 
on keeping 80% of the profits. And that is why you might not get John Jones versus Francis Ngannou. Not because the See, fighters ask for too much money. Yeah, I mean, the you mentioned that because I, I think that it's important to see this sort of public negotiation in the context of what's going on more broadly with not only USC, but Endeavor. Yeah. Because we've just seen these reports out just like in the last week or two that Endeavor is, for one thing, looking at uh, the IPO thing again. That And this time it seems like they're actually going to go through where they're going to do a public offering. But also that they want to own the entirety of the UFC. Now they own just a shade over 50%. Uh, the bulk of the rest owned by this kind of like equity group. They want to basically buy them out and get the whole thing because, and it's mentioned in the New York Post story about uh, Endeavor, strictly because they think that the UFC would be an attractive thing to use to lure in investors. That we can show we own the entirety of the UFC, this thing that kind of proved itself pandemic proof uh, when a lot of the other aspects of our business did not. This thing that keeps the cash rolling in. We have it all now, and that's going to help us make our case to investors. And when you'll recall, as we learned from this antitrust lawsuit, that when the the initial sale was happening to Endeavor, one of the ways that uh, we were making a case to various other investors was by pointing out fighter share of revenue stays below 20%, and we're not going to let it creep up above that. Yeah. And that was one of the things, that was a selling point. That was saying, like, look, don't worry. And it was one of the, the big concerns that possible investors had about buying into the UFC was, wait a minute, the fighters are making noise about wanting more money. What if we buy it and then they end up not being as profitable just because we have to end up paying the fighters more? And the assurance was, we're not going to let that happen. And so when you see this argument going down now, and I'm with you, it seems like a, you saw a lot of people just go like, how could we possibly miss out on this fight? There's no way. There's no way you would let us miss this fight. There's no way you're going to make us do Francis Ngannou versus Derek Lewis 2, which I'm sure, which honestly would be fine. It would be a fine fight, but it wouldn't be a massive fight. It wouldn't be, you know, this, this can't miss huge thing, like a super fight for the ages where you all you have to do is put the two guys on the poster, put their highlights side by side on Sports Center, and then sit back and watch the pay-per-view buys roll in. It wouldn't be that kind of deal. And you're gonna you're gonna do that instead of the mega fight, just because one of the guys wants more money. Like you could double whatever John Jones is getting per fight, guaranteed purse, and still make a bunch of money. Yeah. But you you want to make a buttload of money every single time, and you don't want to risk setting a precedent where fighters start to to creep up their pay for these big fights where when there's a really big fight that they know is going to do well for you, they can hold you over the coals and they start to eat into that 80%. That's what you don't want to allow. It seems like it, you have to read it in the context of that like broader situation. Cause otherwise it's absolutely ridiculous to say anything other than yes, let's do it to Francis Ngannou versus John Jones. Yeah. It's just such a huge fight coming along at just the right time. You talk about breaking the all-time record that the UFC set with uh, Khabib and, and Conor McGregor. I don't know if you quite get there, but you're definitely up over a million buys easily on this thing. There's no possible version where you put on this fight, even if you pay John Jones what he's asking for, or pay, pay him a bunch more money, and you don't make a big profit. But it's just it's kind of similar to what we see with so many of uh, like this investment culture is that we don't want to make just a little bit of money. We want to make massive profits. We want huge return on our investments. And if we can't do that, then it doesn't look like a good deal. Yeah. 
I think you could break the record if you promoted this thing properly, man. If you really went to the mattresses with Francis Ngannou's life story and just the physical specimen that he is, and then John Jones being probably the greatest UFC fighter of all time, moving up to heavyweight to fight this this force of nature. And you, if you had the full attention of SportsCenter, which I think you could probably get if you wanted it, you could do a lot of buys. Let's just say that. Uh, do you think that fighters understand the like this actual financial situation with the UFC? Because John Jones today is on Twitter doing a very John Jones style tweet storm, which he later deletes, which is basically like just cut me already. The boss hates me. What is this shit? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. It would be a powerful argument for John Jones to make to voice, give voice to those numbers that we know that the UFC insists on keeping 80% of the profits, that it's baked into the business model, that they sold the company to Endeavor with a promise that fighter salaries would never go over 20%. And yet, I've never seen a fighter bring that up. I've never seen an active UFC fighter mention that. And is it that they don't feel like they can? Is it that they're scared? Or is it that they don't, they actually like just don't know? Because we've talked before about how fans and media people seem to pay a lot closer attention to this kind of stuff than a lot of the fighters do. But I have to think John Jones knows what the deal is, right? Like somebody has told him at some point. You would think, right? You would, I mean, it's possible that everybody is just so focused on their own corner of this world. And how the situation looks from where they're standing that they, they don't think often about the big picture. But you would think, especially in John Jones's case and, and where he is in, in his career and with the UFC, that somebody would have explained that bigger picture to him. That has to be the case. There's no way John Jones can remain just like completely unaware of that. I, I, I don't believe that. You think? And yet, and yet it also does seem like everybody is doing their stuff. Here, right? Like, not just Dana White, who is just doing his usual thing. Oh, he's scared. Same thing he said about Dustin Poirier, Nate Diaz, Jorge Masvidal. Said about George St. Pierre at times. Everybody's scared, you know? Which I think sadly connects with a lot of people who, you know, are MMA fans. They look at Francis Ngannou and they know they'd be scared to fight that guy. And so when Dana White's like, oh, he, he doesn't really want, this isn't really about money. He just doesn't want to fight that guy. They go, oh, okay, that, that makes sense. I wouldn't want to fight him either if I didn't have to. And they don't realize that John Jones didn't get to be John Jones by being scared of a fist fight. Even it's with Francis Ngannou. Yeah. But he does have a right to look at, at Francis Ngannou and be like, mm, that guy could change your life with one punch. Not only that, not only are there big risks for me, but I know you're going to make a ton of money on it. And if you're making a ton of money on it, then I need to be making a ton of money on it. Because you can't do it without me. And he's making the calculation from that that perspective but also he's doing his stuff where he just goes on twitter and is like cut me already the, the boss hates me this is bullshit I, the ufc sucks and you know everybody then is going to do their stuff where they're like uh how about when the ufc stood by you when you had your hit and run or all this time the ufc made you a millionaire or whatever everybody's just like falling into their role here and i i feel like i i start to go wait a minute does this mean we're going to end up Six months from now, we still don't have this fight booked. Because you are you going to turn around? You're going to really try to put out like hype pieces to get me pumped for Engano versus Lewis too? Like, is that really what you're going to do? Just just out of spite and just because you'd rather keep 
the status quo going than make a truly massive fight. And I, I don't know if I want to live in that world, Chad. No, no. That just depresses the hell out of me. I think we have it. We have it right here in our hands. We can make this great, amazing, huge thing happen. The kind of shit that might actually draw in some new fans. The kind of shit that might like reach outside the bubble, which is so hard to do these days. Get people's attention. Get them in here to see what you're doing. And then maybe you, you create some new fight fans out of it. And you're not going to do it. You're going to choose to not do it. That just baffles me. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. But I think that's where we're at, especially the UFC has shown that, that it will outlast these guys, outweight them, wait them out, essentially. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that's what it decides to try to do here. In any case, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back. Round number three. The 38-year-old now former UFC heavyweight champion of the world, Stipe Miocic, posted a social media message along with his wife from the hospital in the wake of UFC 260, essentially saying he's fine. Sometimes it goes like that, but I'm going to be okay. Clearly, we will remember Stipe Miocic up to this point, at least as the greatest heavyweight champion that the UFC has had in the modern era. But he also seems like a guy who purposefully kind of made it difficult for us to get our arms around him, that he wasn't all that interested in doing media stuff. He would much rather hang out at the firehouse over in Cleveland and do fireman stuff than uh, than be on your MMA podcast or, or, or what have you. And I wonder how much that will impact our perception of him as time goes by, because if Francis Ngannou lives up his, to his potential as UFC heavyweight champion, which is a big if, admittedly, uh, I would kind of hate to see Stipe Miocic regarded as sort of a transitional champion between the eras of, say, a Brock Lesnar and Francis Ngannou. But is there a danger of that? That, like, as the years go by, that we will sort of, like, uh, forget the importance of Stipe Miocic in a way? Yeah, there is a real danger of that. You know, I, I think he he had that, that the, the problem of like you said, wasn't super interested in self-promotion, wasn't super great at it when he had to do it. But also, we felt like we got to see him enough and hear from him enough that he didn't quite get, like, the other end of the spectrum with Fedor Mystique kind of going for him, you know? Right. And I, I do wonder how it'll play as time goes by, because Fedor benefits a lot from nostalgia in hindsight, he gets better in our memories the longer we get from the prime of Fedor, you know. And I don't, I don't know if it'll be the same for Stipe just because of the way you know his career has played out. And somebody was asking in my mailbag this week about how when we keep talking about Stipe as the most dominant UFC heavyweight champion or the greatest UFC heavyweight champion, are we intentionally doing it to avoid getting into a Fedor conversation? Because we don't want to make that kind of comparison. Uh, and because we don't feel like it would go well for Stipe. Just because like, there's not that little extra thing for the imagination to latch onto. All, instead, all there is is just a really fucking good fighter. Yeah. And a really good, consistent fighter over a really long time. Like thinking about him after this fight, you know, I was writing something up for the athletic afterwards where they were saying basically like, you know, what what's next for Stipe? And 
especially if we do Nganu versus John Jones in like the the sane version of the world or Nganu versus Derek Lewis or somebody like that, it does seem like if Stipe decides he wants to continue fighting, it'll his next fight will be a non-title fight. And it'll be his first non-title fight since like what 2016 or something like that. I mean, you look at how long this guy's just been in the the UFC heavyweight title picture, you know, it, it to, to be that good for that long, especially in this division, is really, really difficult. And even now with this loss to Nganu, it's like the only person that Stipe Miocic has ever lost to, but then also didn't beat at some point, was Stefan Struve. And Stefan Struve has since retired, so it looks like he'll never get that one back. But everybody else, you know, Junior DeSantos got that, that was like questionable win over him. He avenged that loss. Daniel Cormier knocked him out. He turned around and knocked Daniel Cormier out and then beat him in the rubber match. Francis Ngannou gets this knockout win over him, but Stipe had a decision win over him. Like, that's really kind of remarkable stuff just stat-wise for a, a, a heavyweight, especially in this era. And I think it's like, it feels to me like in a lot of ways, Stipe's the kind of fighter where like stats were invented basically for him because that's the only way to really latch on to what he he has managed to do in his career because just like personality wise or like as the fodder for the imagination he just never really gave that to us yeah uh clearly that trilogy with Cormier is is one of the greats up to this point and really defined the UFC heavyweight division and the title picture over the last couple of years uh, took a long time, frankly, to put all three of those fights together. Um, but I think that they were worth it once we got them. Do you think we get to an Nganu trilogy with Stipe? Or, uh, you know, do we just not have enough time left either in his career? Or I guess Nganu would have to prove to be as good as we think he can be and win a couple of fights perhaps in the interim. Or if a John Jones title fight doesn't materialize, does the UFC think if we get Francis Nganu through a Derek Lewis rematch, Maybe the next best thing is that trilogy fight with Miocic. You know, if you ask me how I think the sport should work and what the the sort of unwritten rule should be, should a guy like Stipe, who's been champion for as long as he has, who has been the most dominant UFC champion, broke the t- consecutive title defense record, had that first win over Francis Ngannou, should that guy get a chance at a rubber match? In a hypothetical world, I tell you, yes. Yeah. The sport should work that way. And yet, after watching that fight, I I feel like I like Stipe too much to see him put through that again. Because I don't think a third one would go any better for him, honestly. I mean, I, I think the guy is tough as all hell. I think he's a smart fighter. I think he's a, a just he's one of the great heavyweights of all time. And I still think this version of Francis Ngannou is just kind of a nightmare for him. Yeah, and I think he, you can do it in a big cage if you want. You can do it. In a box on a fox, Chad, I still think that this guy, Francis Ngannou, right now beats Stipe Miocic right now. And, I, you know, he put out this other statement on Instagram, uh, I think, saying, uh, it sounds like maybe a I'll continue on statement. One part of it, you know, he says, like, to his sorry and thank you to his team and everything and to the city of Cleveland and, and, and Croatia. But he also says, losses aren't fun. They always sting for a while, but that's the beast of this business. You can't win them all, and it's important to understand that losing is just as much as part of sports and life as winning. Don't ever forget God will always put you where you're meant to be at that exact moment. You can't dwell on what you should have done better, but you can learn and improve from it and come back more prepared next time. 
next time, Chad. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't expect him to walk away on the heels of this one. It's just a question of how long he wants to, to soldier on and what, what might be next for him and what might be down the road. Like, I would certainly watch a third fight with Francis Ngannou. The, uh, you know, he wouldn't be the favorite, but at the same time, I don't, you know, the favorite this time. But, Ngannou yeah. didn't didn't prove himself to be perfect by any stretch of the imagination in this fight. So. Like, you know, would I pick Stipe in a rematch? Probably not, but I think he could make it more competitive if he was able to work a little bit more of his game. It just depends on, uh, you know, how that individual fight played out. But, but you know, even if he walked away today, I would feel like he's a, he's a, a, a weird and singular character in the sport because, you know, up to this point, he's the best probably modern UFC heavyweight champion that we've seen, and yet he didn't. He seemed like he liked the fighting part of it and and not the rest, kind of, yeah. which is maybe a natural thing for some people. Do you think Khabib sees somebody on Instagram writing about how you can't win them all and wants to comment, LOL, brother? Yeah, he you would know? be a real dick if he did that, like right in the, right in the wake of, uh, of Stipe's loss. But some of us actually can win them all, Stipe. I, it seems like the UFC has maybe never totally loved Stipe. As as a champion, probably more excited about what you can do promotionally with a guy like Francis Ngannou. You know, you might just get into a situation with where the heavyweight division is and how it shakes out that it looks like a, a third fight is the best business you can do, depending on what Stipe decides to do. But there's also a version of this that I can't help but imagine where Stipe, who's closing in on his 39th birthday this summer, where he decides to continue on, you know, Maybe wins one, loses one here in a couple of like non-title bouts. And 18 months from now, he's fighting Tom Aspinall yeah. in, in like the, you know, the, the co-main event of a pay-per-view or the main event of a fight night kind of thing. And it's just that same life cycle of a fighter thing all over again, even though the rest of us are standing outside going, you don't need this. Like you already cemented your place, your legacy as one of the great heavyweights of all time. You made some good money at it. Even, you know, you might not have made Conor McGregor money, but you made good money. You don't seem to be living a lavish lifestyle. Stipe Miocic ain't walking around here with a fuck watch, Chad. He's got a career already that he never gave up. He's got a, a family with young kids, all that stuff, hanging around into your 40s, getting hit in the head by some of these heavyweight monsters does not seem like a risk that is worth the rewards too much further going on board into the future. And yet at the same time, that's kind of like, that's me selfishly saying, uh, I would like to see Steve Bay sort of walk away and leave it as it is. Just as a fight fan, not to put us through the emotional strain of watching him continue because we know how that goes sometimes. But also you can understand how Steve Bay would be stepping back, looking at the UFC's heavyweight top 15 and going, I beat almost all these guys right now. And not, he's not wrong if he, if he made that calculation. Right, but at the same time, like you said, you mentioned Dana White has a playbook for when a guy asks for more money, he turns to page 78 and says that he doesn't really want the fight. The UFC clearly has a playbook for what to do with the aging former champion mm-hmm. who uh, who sticks around a little bit too long, and it is have him fight Vicente Luque. Uh, so whoever the heavyweight version of that is uh, would probably be in Stipe Miocic's future if he stuck around that long. Cyril uh, let's. Yeah, let's go ahead and do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week, Ben. What is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, as I was watching Francis Ngannou's walk to the cage on Saturday night, there was a nice moment on the broadcast where Joe Rogan paused and sort of ran through uh, Francis Ngannou's backstory. 
talking about his journey from Cameroon to get to Paris, all this time that he spent you know, trying to get to Spain, only to be caught and brought back, left for dead in the Sahara, basically, according to Joe Rogan, seven different times, all this stuff trying to immigrate from one place to the next, and look what a monumental struggle it was, and how incredibly difficult it was, and what an inspiring story it is that the guy made it finally, and then you know made himself into a world championship level fighter, all that stuff. I couldn't help think, knowing what I know about the demographic and political breakdown of a lot of the UFC's audience, that there were a lot of people at home watching this pay-per-view, nodding their heads along with, yes, it is truly an inspiring story of the triumph of the human spirit, that this guy stuck with his dream and managed to immigrate from Africa to, to France and uh, make this great change in his life and, and found for himself a better life. And it is a, a wonderful story. Who also are going to turn right around and get on a, a website and comment about these damn illegals coming over the border. I'm just saying, there's a lot of those people who heard that story and never even considered applying it to anyone else other than Francis Ngannou in any other sort of situation going on around the world. Yeah. And that... That's weird to me, man. I'm just saying. <laughs> just saying. Uh, well, Ben, we're two weeks away from the UFC's debut on ABC, network television. And I found myself sitting here wondering today, does that still matter? Does it still feel like a big deal to even have the UFC or MMA in general on a network television platform? Because you'll recall, at one point, that was the holy grail. That's where we wanted to be. That was the thing that was going to change everything. And then we did Fox and, you know, we've had some other promotions with their dalliances on CBS and elsewhere. And now I feel like it's not even a big deal. We're just like uh, roughly 10 days out from Darren Till versus Marvin Vittori. First of all, that's your main event on your network, network television premiere. I just feel like it's kind of a ho-hum thing at this point. Maybe it will start to feel like a much bigger deal as we get closer to the fight. But I just sort of feel like uh, maybe we've tried it. We know how it goes, and we know what the results are at this point. And again, to me, that also is a very weird thing. I'm just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Thanks for uh, tuning in to listen to us wrap up UFC 260. Remember, uh, we'll be over at the Patreon, patreon.com slash co-main event all week. We got the live chat on Wednesday, a movie club podcast about King Kong versus Godzilla coming up on Thursday, round out Monster Movie Month, and then on Friday, the Power Hour, uh, where we will start to look ahead probably to stuff like Darren Till versus Marvin Vittori. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know, though, you know who the curtain jerker is on ABC? Who? Mike Perry versus Daniel Rodriguez. We're gonna we're gonna kick in the door on ABC and say, and here's Mike Perry. So you're telling me that some older fella who who leaves his TV on? This is an afternoon show too, right? Doesn't this go off at like three o'clock in the afternoon or something like that? Uh, so some guy's probably gonna leave his TV on after The Price Is Right, and uh, he's, maybe he dozes off and when he wakes up. He's the first guy he sees is Mike Perry, huh? Yep. And look at the at the visage of Mike Perry as we move into this ABC year. Directly into that visage. But Chad, when you stare into the visage, the visage also stares back.